though we are not there yet, most of you know that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 contains one of the most well-known and succinct summaries of the gospel in all of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, as I've said before, this passage is often misunderstood. Some people would say that to share the gospel requires only describing the events that this text mentions. Because Paul said, I would remind you of the gospel. And then he walks through these three historic events. And so they would say that if you, if you were to approach somebody and you were to say Jesus Christ died, was buried, and was raised that you have basically exhausted the, the responsibility laid upon you to be a witness for, for Christ or a, a, an evangelist or a bearer of the gospel. And I don't think that that is what Paul is trying to do here. It's not meant to be a complete opening up of the gospel that even Paul preached because there are uh, 12 chapters in the book of Romans, or 11 chapters in the book of Romans, where Paul elaborates far more on the, the expansiveness of what he calls the gospel there. I don't think he was trying to give a complete opening of the gospel. He was giving a summary to get to the point that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, because that's what he then goes on to explain. He, he's reminding them that the gospel cannot be without the resurrection, that Christianity does not exist without the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So he, he enumerates those points. Paul says there that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, crucified and raised according to the Scriptures. And even that we could say, well, if I'm going to proclaim the gospel and these historical events as they are laid out according to the Scriptures, there's far more than just saying he died and was buried and was raised. What he meant there was that the death and resurrection of Christ were not only foretold in the Scriptures of the Old Testament, but that the, the import or the meaning, the saving nature of that work, the purpose of the death, burial, and resurrection was also laid out in the Old Testament Scriptures. It wasn't a, a brand new striking idea, but the prophets had foretold these things. The gospel is far more than merely announcing historical facts. It contains the theological import and purpose behind the actions of the Son of God. Christ, the Son of God incarnate, died for our sins. That is, He suffered the penalty which was due to us because of our sins. And the Old Testament Scriptures foretold that. They, they typified that. They prepared us for that reality. He was buried. Proof positive that He was truly dead. He remained in the grave three days and three nights according to the, the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day as the victor over sin and death. And He did that also as a public person. His resurrection was one that was as our representative. When He came out of the grave, it was as if we also came out with Him. Because when we are born again, it's as if we were buried with Christ. Our old man dies with Him, and the new man comes out of the tomb with Him. Now, including in the or included in the resurrection is the subject of His ascension to glory and power to rule the nations. Often we separate these things because they were separated by time. But in a, a theology of resurrection, there, there's almost two parts to it. He comes out of the grave and then eventually continues to go up into the heavens. He ascended in the heaven to rule the nations. And this is what He's done. The position of Jesus Christ right now is that He is seated on the throne of David and He is ruling over a kingdom which has no ends and no limits. 
Our Lord sits in the heavens right now, this very instant, ruling over an everlasting dominion. That's His position. And again, that was foretold and and typified in the Old Testament Scriptures. There are some who would say that all of this was brand new revelation, really, when when Christ did it. Nobody nobody had any clue that it was going to be like this. But Peter says that the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That He would suffer, that He would raise from the dead, and also ascend to glory. That's in the Old Testament somewhere, Peter says. All of this, again, this is the gospel according to the Scriptures. And Christ Himself during His earthly ministry even predicted these types of things when He said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, when we read that and we read the following context, we know that he is is referring uh, first and foremost primarily to his physical body. Crucify this body, put it in the ground, and I'll raise it up. But we also know that the church of Jesus Christ is called his mystical body and the temple of the Lord. And, And it was in his resurrection that the new creation was inaugurated and Christ began the formal work of raising up or building up His mystical body, the church, a worldwide universal people made of Jew and Gentile alike. The church is Christ's mystical body, God's temple as we have seen, or God's house. Keep that word in mind, house. Paul even says in 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, the household, or we could simply say the house of God, which is the church of the living God. The church is God's house. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, we read that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And then what does it say? We are that house. You ever felt like a house? We are that house. The church is the house of God. And Christ is over God's house. The church is Christ's mystical body, God's temple, God's house. And the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ as God's Son is the one who has been set over the house. He was given, Paul says in Ephesians 1, He was given as head over all things to the church, to rule over the church as God's house. Christ, then, is the owner, the master, and the ruler of the house, His church. And we, according to Christ in Luke chapter 12, are like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. We're the servants of the house. And we're patiently, uh, longingly waiting for our Master to return. That's the great hope of the saints. He has ascended into glory, just as He predicted, but He's not going to stay there. He will return. We're longing for the return of the Master of the house. The saints are referred to as those who love His appearing. We love the idea that someday we will see the Master of the house return. So powerful will be the return of our Master when He comes to His house, that the very sight of Him coming in the clouds is going to transform our lowly bodies so that they will be made like His glorious body so that we can live and dwell with Him in eternity forever without the hint of sin, without a hint of weakness, without a hint of corruption. We love the master of the house. We revere the master of the house. We long to see the master of the house. That's the attitude of a Christian. The reason that we're here on the first day of the week is because the master of the house is alive and he is coming. And we're waiting patiently his return. Now, there's another aspect of this household analogy that we often miss. I just quoted from a parable in Luke chapter 12. We're like servants waiting on the master of the house to return. But just after that, the Lord gives another parable. In Luke chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, we read these words. And the Lord said, 
Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Here comes another aspect to this household picture. Here we meet the so-called manager of the house. He's not the owner of the house. He's not the master of the house. But he has been set over the house by the owner and master. And his title here is manager. Or another word would be steward of the house. And his job is to basically make sure that the household is fed, is nurtured, is cared for, that everything in the household continues to function properly as it ought to, that there is uh, productivity and advancement in the household until the master returns. That's the job of the manager. Now, several questions come to our minds, like who is this manager? What does it mean to give food to the household? It's a parable. These things relate to something. What is it to give food to the household? When will the task of this manager be completed? I won't answer those questions just yet, but think of a couple more questions. How should the household view that manager? What should be the attitude in the the household toward this manager? If we love the master of the house... We revere the master of the house. We long to see the master of the house return. Then what should be our attitude toward the one that he has set over his household? And then secondly, to whom is this manager ultimately accountable? Who is he ultimately accountable to? To the household or to his master who has set him over the household? Well, those are the questions that Paul is actually answering here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul assumes that we have this understanding of the church as God's house, of Christ as the master of the house, and of its ministers as the managers that God has set over the household to give everyone their food at the proper time. You see, it was the Corinthians who had confused and distorted and even traded out this biblical view of the church and its ministry for worldly wisdom, worldly popularity, and worldly prestige. They... No doubt Paul had explained these things to them in his 18 months with them, but they had held on to some of their worldly philosophies and wisdom, and they had begun to think in those terms in the church. As we saw last week, they were acting, on the one hand, like masters over the household themselves. On the other hand, they had taken God's given servants and sort of turned them into masters, following them, giving them an allegiance that they should not have had, and most of them were very disparaging of the Apostle Paul himself. When you read these two letters, you find out their attitude towards Paul in particular was was very unrighteous, we could say. Now, having addressed the issues of worldly wisdom and shown them the foolishness of limiting themselves with regard to the ministry given to them by God... Paul now goes on to specifically address how they are to think about the Christian ministry itself. Because remember, again, they despised Paul's methodology. They they saw the fact that Paul suffered so much as a great red flag on his ministry. He, He comes, he says he's coming in the name of God, but wait a second. Look at all this suffering. That that caused them to question him. You find out later on, even the fact. Listen to the irony. Even the fact that he would not let them pay him was a reason they used against him to question his authority. Now we say, well, that's absolutely foolish, but think about it for a second. Say you need some work done at your house, and you, somebody gives you a number, hey, here, here's this guy. You call a guy, he shows up at your house, he doesn't really look like the professional you expected. He doesn't seem to have a lot of the tools like the professional you expected. And you show him what you need done, and, and you say, what's this going to cost? And he says, oh, I wouldn't worry about it. Well, let's, just, let's just get into it and see how it goes. Well, you're immediately thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. This, doesn't sound, this doesn't sound right. You're thinking, if this guy is willing to come in and work for nothing, 
He's probably thinking, I'm, I'm about to butcher this whole thing and I don't want to, I'm not going to take any payment for it. So we understand that. You, you think, we think, if you pay for something, you're getting a good product. And the more you pay, the better, you're, the better product you're going to get. Well, this is how they thought. Paul wouldn't let them pay him. And they thought, wait a second, we must be getting some sort of a sham if this is all for nothing. This is the way that they, they treated him. But as we've seen, their thinking was backward from the way that God's kingdom works. And so Paul has to correct some of that here in chapter 4. Today we'll look at verses 1 through 5 where Paul describes the ministry. He addresses issues of accountability. And then he makes an application of this to the Corinthians themselves. So the first thing that we see in, these, in the text here is a summary description of the Christian ministry. A summary description of the Christian ministry. In verses 1 and 2, Paul picks up on the theme of the role of the Christian ministry in contrast to how the Corinthians had been acting. Just before we get there, remember, he's already said, back in chapter 3, verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Then in chapter 3, verses 21 to 23, he said, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. In other words, the, the Christian ministry is a gift from God to you, the, regardless of who they are. They are meant to serve the church. So he's already said some things about this. Who are these men? Or, or what are these men? Servants. Don't boast in men. Don't get behind them like masters. They were given for your service. Now we come to chapter 4 and he says this. Look at verse 1. This is how one should regard us. Or this is how one should think about us. This is how one should account us. Now who is us? Us is those who serve in the ministry. In this time it was the apostles. Nowadays it would be the, the, the regular pastor elders in the church. It's, it's the ministers. This is how one should think about the ministry and those who serve in the ministry. Now, neither the Holy Spirit nor Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, are given to needless repetition. So when we see a phrase like this, this is how one should regard us as servants, when we see that and we think, he's saying the exact same thing again. That ought to give us pause to ask a couple questions. The first is, is he really saying the exact same thing again? And secondly, is there some extreme to which what he's already said might be taken that he's now trying to correct? He's, he's coming back to a similar point, but it's not the exact same point. Again, the answer to those two questions are no and yes. He's, he's not saying the exact same thing. And there is an extreme to which some might take what he's already said. Think about it. He said, we're servants. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. The word there meant table waiters, basically. We, we exist to minister to your needs. That's what he said. Then at the end of chapter 3, he said, basically, we are yours. God gave the ministry to you. We are yours. We exist for your benefit and your growth. We are not your masters. We were given to serve you. Now, what might be the extremes to which somebody might go when they hear that type of thing. Well, some people might be tempted to be tyrants. They might think that, well, it must be our job to rule as masters over the ministers. Well, you said you're a servant, right? Well, then that must make me the master. Or some may think that as servants, they deserve very little respect at all. After all... They're just servants. This is hard for us to imagine, but in these days there were places where if you were just a servant, you got no respect at all, no esteem. And some people might be tempted to think that. He said servants, so we don't need to respect them. Or some might think that as servants, the ministers are accountable to them. You said you're my servant. That means you answer to me. In response to all of that, Paul here says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Here Paul lays out the essential function 
and requirement of the Christian minister or the Christian ministry. First, we see its essential function. Servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, when we see that phrase, servants of Christ, you might read that and say, we've already seen that. No need to cover that. We already heard that. What then is Paul? Is? What is Paul? Servants. We, we got it. Again, Paul is not saying the exact same thing. The word that is translated servants here is different from the word that was used in chapter 3, verse 5. It's similar, but there's just a, a little bit of a different angle on this word. That earlier word, the emphasis was on the service rendered to someone. I'm, I'm here to serve you or, or give you a service. This word here can also be translated servant. In, in English, we don't have a, a plethora of words to translate all these various Greek words. It can still be translated servant, but this word emphasizes the fact that the servant is commissioned by or acts under the authority of someone else. So whereas he has been saying, we are your servants, now he's emphasizing the service of the ministry is under the direction of someone else. We are servants of whom? Of Christ. Though they serve you, they are not, or you are not their master. Again, we could go back to the illustration of the, the waiter or waitress in the restaurant. What is their job? Well, they come to your table. They ask you what you want. You tell them they get it. You ask them for extra napkins. They go get it. More drink. They go get it. They bring your food. They, if, you, if you didn't know any better, you would say, wow, this person has, is just sold out to me. No, they're not. They're doing that for their paycheck. They serve somebody else. They work for the owner of the restaurant, but the job that the owner has given them is serve the people at the tables. That's the same idea here. Paul is correcting any thinking that would say, oh, you're our servants. Well, we must be your masters. No, he's saying we are your servants. That's correct. But we serve under the direction of Christ. Christ is our master, not you. The essential function of the Christian ministry is service to Jesus Christ. Christian ministers are servants under the direction of Christ. We serve the church. But that does not mean that the church or the saints thereby become masters of the ministers. The minister of Christ has one master, Jesus Christ. The second aspect of the ministry we see in the words stewards of the mysteries of God. The Christian minister is a steward of the mysteries of God. This word steward is the exact same word we read in Luke chapter 12 for manager. So if you wanted to, you could translate the word manager here. It's a steward, a steward of the mysteries. That word is also used in Luke 16.1 where it says there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Notice the rich man is the owner. All of the possessions belong to the rich man. The manager or the steward is simply set in charge of the possessions of his master. If, if, if it would help to make sense of the words when we read in Scripture, we are God's house, that word is oikos like the yogurt. When we read this word, steward, the word is uh, 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 two words put together, oikos and nomos. If, whenever you hear nomo, think law. Like an antinomian is an anti, they're against the law. Nomos. So we have house law, house manager, house ruler. That's what this word means, a steward. A steward was one set over the household by the owner to make sure that the day-to-day -day affairs of the house were conducted properly and that the entire household, including all of the servants, were properly taken care of. That's the steward, the manager. Now, what is the object of the minister's stewardship? Well, it says, or Paul says, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, you remember this from back in chapter 2 when he talked about the mystery a reference to the fullness of God's revelation 
as it centers on the person and work of Christ in the gospel. Most commentators, when they say, when they see mystery, they'll just say, when he says mystery, we can just read that gospel. The fullness of the gospel or all of the revelation of God as it funnels down into the glory of God in the face of Christ in the gospel. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the gospel of God. So this is the essential function of the Christian ministry and the Christian minister. The minister is a servant of Christ. He serves under the direction of Christ Himself. He does not get His orders or His job description from the church. He gets it from Christ. The minister is a steward of the mysteries of God. The revelation of God in the gospel. His duty is to make sure that the household, the church, gets its food at the proper time. The Word of God. That's the job of the steward. Make sure the house gets fed. Or preach the Word. Feed feed my sheep is the picture. Then we see the most basic requirement of the Christian ministry. Moreover, he says... It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That word faithful could also be translated trustworthy. It's the basic requirement. Just be trustworthy. Just be faithful. A master has to know that he can trust his manager to do the job. Be that type of manager is what he's saying. The basic requirement of a Christian minister is that he be faithful that he be trustworthy in caring for the household of God. Titus 1.7 says, An overseer is God's steward. God's steward, God's manager. An overseer. And, and uh, episkopos is the word. Epi, over, and, and scope. To look out over, to watch out over the household. An overseer, a, an overwatcher, is God's Steward, God's manager. And Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. The job of the minister or the pastor or the elder is to care for God's church. Why? Because He's the steward. He's been put in the position to make sure the household is taken care of. So the most basic requirement is simply to be faithful in that. Just do that. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Just do that. The job of the Christian minister is to be faithful to the wishes and instructions of the owner of the church. As we've seen, the house belongs to to Christ. The servants belong to Christ. All of the resources belong to Christ. The minister simply does his job as instructed in the Word of God. Just do what the book says. Don't add to what the book says. Don't take away from what the book says. Just do what the book says. It's it's really that simple. Basic requirement. Do what the book says. That's faithfulness. That's trustworthiness. So what is a summary of a summary description of the Christian ministry or minister he's a servant of Christ a steward of the gospel and he is to be faithful in that role Heading number 2 in, in verses 3 and 4 we have a statement concerning ministerial accountability a statement concerning ministerial accountability Paul just said that that ministers are servants and stewards. They are to be faithful. They are to be trustworthy. Well, the question then becomes, by whom are they to be counted faithful? To whom will they answer for their faithfulness or lack thereof? Obviously, if the basic requirement is faithfulness, there has to be someone somewhere at some time who decides what faithfulness is, how it's defined, and who will decide whether or not a minister has met that requirement. The Corinthians were acting as though Paul and Apollos and other ministers were accountable to them 
Again, we're going back to the, 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 the idea of their payment. It was sort of a pride thing when they could pay because that made them feel like masters. We will pay you for the services rendered to us. They, that's how they thought. They believed that they, the church, were the final judges of what was good and proper in this work. And the question, obviously, is that right? Is that how we should think? To be clear, there is a certain measure of accountability that every minister owes to those under his care, just as all Christians are to be held accountable by their brothers and sisters. We read in Scripture that the church has the duty to evaluate a man based on the qualifications in Scripture. The church has, in light of that, has the responsibility to uh, remove a man from office if he is not fulfilling the qualifications or meeting the qualifications in Scripture. But in an ultimate sense, at the end of the day, to whom does the minister of Christ answer? Paul gives or names three potential options. He says in verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. You meaning the church in Corinth. Now I think that we could argue that they were not mature enough to make such an evaluation. The church, again, does have the duty to evaluate a man based on qualifications given in Scripture. They do have the responsibility, if he fails to meet those qualifications, to remove the man from office. But that assumes that they are mature enough and competent enough to make that evaluation. I think the Corinthians had proven they're not there yet. They're not ready to be making those types of decisions. A.W. Tozer used to say, and this is from Albert Martin, that A.W. Tozer would say that when someone wants to offer a critique of a minister or the ministry, look for the oil on his forehead. You say, what does that mean? Well, if you think about it in the Old Testament, the prophets, the priests, the kings were anointed with oil. It was a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It was Tozer's way of saying if somebody is going to give an evaluation of the minister or the ministry, a, a critique of some sort, make sure that this you're, you're dealing with a, a spiritually mature Christian. Look for the oil on their forehead. Listen to those and heed those who are known for spiritual maturity and godliness. That's not the Corinthians we've already seen. That's, that's Paul's problem. The Corinthians are not that. And so he says, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Now, I, I just think it's astonishing, and I, I wrote here in my notes, he actually said that. He's writing a letter to them, and he actually says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. It, it, your opinion of me is, is very small. He actually said that to this church. Paul was a man who was resolute in his calling and in his work. And, and whether or not the Corinthians judged him properly, that was a small thing. Their estimation of him did not account to very much. Now that doesn't mean that he could say, I could care less what any of you think of me. That's not what he's saying here. But he did say what he said. It's a small thing. So it wasn't the, the, the church in Corinth who had the ultimate say. The second option he gives is, is any other human court. He says it's a small thing, very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, any, any other human body of judges. It matters not what those outside the church think about the Christian ministry. But then he says, In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. He says the ultimate ju judge of the ministry and the minister is not even the man in the ministry. And he could say this, I, my, my conscience is clear, it's essentially what he's saying, with regard to the ministry, he's not saying I can't name a sin. What he's saying is, with regard to the ministry, I can't think of anything that I've done wrong. But that fact alone does not justify me. That, that does not settle the matter. So it's not the church, it's not any other human court, it's not even himself. Ultimately, he says, it is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord. And that would make perfect sense, right? 
If the Christian minister is a servant of Christ, if he is a steward of the ministries or the mysteries of God that God has given, a deposit God has given, therefore he's ultimately accountable to God in Christ. He is to be found faithful by God and God's standard. God outlines the instructions for the service in Scripture. God gives the deposit of the gospel in Scripture and through spiritual gifts. God is the one who defines what faithfulness is. The minister ultimately answers to God. Now, we have a tendency when we hear things like that to, to think that this somehow places the man in the ministry on a level that is different from everybody else. But listen to what Paul says in Romans 14. Here he's writing to all Christians. Romans 14, 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He's applying the same principle here. He's just applying it to the ministry. They were thinking, oh, you've come to serve us. We are your master then. Paul's saying, no, no, no. I'm the, I'm the servant of another, just like all Christians are. This is true of the ministry in the church and of those who serve in the ministry of the church. The Lord of the church is the one to whom each of us will give an account for our specific gifts and calling and what we did with what He gave us. Every one of us. So these are Paul's thoughts on ministerial accountability. But then he makes this, thirdly, the, the application in light of our mutual authority. The application in light of our mutual authority. Both the minister and the, the congregation, we all serve the same master. In light of the role and requisites for the ministry, and they're being answerable to God, what does Paul have to say to the Corinthians? Well, he gives them this command. Therefore, this is verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. One commentator puts it this way, do not make, quote, critical preliminary examinations. Do not bring the gavel of your own opinions and preferences down upon one who got their job description from Christ and who will ultimately answer to Him for what they did with that job. But this is what the Corinthians had done. In appointing their favorites, they had cast aside the others as though they were not truly ministers of God. Again, especially the Apostle Paul. Many were saying he's not really a minister. Quoting from Albert Martin on this text, he says, No church criticized Paul like the church in Corinth. Paul was not unconcerned with their criticisms, but he saw that their standard of evaluating him was more Corinthian than Christian. They were very critical, but they were not using a Christian lens for their criticisms. And so he says, do not pronounce judgment before the time. What time? Well, he describes the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things that now, the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. He's clearly describing what the New Testament refers to as the day of the Lord, the final day, the, the, the day of judgment. On that day, the Lord will come. He says, before the Lord comes. The Lord Jesus will return bodily to the earth on this day. And on this day that he's referring to, the day of the Lord's return, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. In other words, when He comes bodily on that day, He is going to make manifest everything that we could not see. Our judgments are so shallow, so carnal, so full of our own opinions and our world and our, our culture and our, our ancestry and our background. Everything that we see in the world, we view through these lenses. Our judgments lack the knowledge of the intentions of men's hearts. We might look at one and say, he's excellent. God says he's black and rotting. And we might look at another one and say, he's not that great. God says, my choice servant. Because he can see what we cannot see. 
We are inadequate judges. And what he's saying is there's going to come a day when Christ will come and He's going to make all this clear. We're not sufficient for that task. And he says on that day each one will receive his commendation or his praise from God. The rewards for the work are going to be handed out by God. The only competent judge will render to each man according to his works on this day. On that day, the final day, the day of Christ's return, every minister ever called into God's service will be called to account, to give a reckoning for what he did with what God gave him. Every steward will be marshaled and lined up before the master of the house and each one of them, each one of us, one by one, are going to answer to our master with what we did with the stewardship entrusted to us. And this is why James says, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Not every one of you should be teachers, brothers. We who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Some people would read Paul's words here and they say, well, this is a good way for a man to dodge accountability. Oh, I'm not going to be judged by you, I'm going to be judged by God. That's, it's like the people who, who get the tattoo that says, only God can judge me, right? Like, like, like you just got out of something. No, no, you just slid up under the, the all-seeing, omnipotent, perfectly scrutinizing eye of God. He's not dodging accountability, but he's placing himself under the proper accountability. He's letting the Corinthians know that his work among them is going to be held to a standard far more rigorous than they could imagine. And yet it would be, at least, a righteous standard. Matthew Henry said on commenting on this verse, quote, The best of men are apt to judge rashly, harshly, and unjustly. And so we say with David in 2 Samuel 24, Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. God's judgment is severe and it's strict, but it's righteous. It's perfect. It's, it's holy. So the application, Paul says, if at all possible, this is the application for us, avoid making sweeping, conclusive, private determinations about Christ's ministers. Avoid making sweeping, conclusive, private determinations about Christ's ministers. They are servants. They are given for the benefit of the church, but you are not their master. You're not their master. And if you must form an opinion, we all are tempted to form opinions and have to at, at times, do so on the basis of the Word of God alone. Scripture alone. Before making sweeping determinations about men or a man, ask yourself, number one, what is this man's job description from Scripture? What is his job description? And number two... Is he doing that job? It might also help before making these types of judgments to ask yourself, do I want to stand in his shoes on judgment day? Most of us would say no. Number two, do I want to sit on Christ's judgment throne on judgment day? Most of us would say no. Well, then why is there such compulsion to sit on that throne now? To render judgments now that are... are the prerogative of Christ alone. Also keep in mind that there is no harm in withholding those judgments. We're not going to stand before God and turn in sheets of the premature private determinations that we made of men and be evaluated on how many judgments we could make of other people. It is okay to refrain from making these types of judgments. Just remember that. It's okay. I don't have to form an opinion about every man. If it's appropriate, you can say, I don't know the man. This is what I love to say about popular men, that I, I just don't know. 
What do you think about so-and-so? What do you think about so-and-so? Say this, I don't know the man. I'm not familiar with his ministry. He will answer to God. He will not answer to me. It's really none of my business. Now, if people are being led astray into false teaching, that's a different story. But just keep that in your mind. I don't know him. I, how can I make a determination? You can alleviate that pressure by just withholding, refraining from this. Again, quoting from Al Martin. Quote, one of the hazards of public ministry is the realization that everyone is judging you. Everyone likes or dislikes, agrees or disagrees, confirms or refutes virtually everything you say in the pulpit. That's, he said that's just one of the hazards. It comes with the territory. We have the opportunity to, at least in our own minds, alleviate some of that by just saying, I'm not going to be that type of person. Now, I'm not saying we don't measure things by the Word of God and, and evaluate to make sure things are, are biblical and scriptural. But it's okay to, to avoid these sweeping, private determinations. There are many men, we've mentioned these men before, from the past that we look back now and it's really hard to make a determination. There, there are men with theology that if we knew them now, if they were writing their theology now, we would say that man is not a Christian. We would say that. Richard Baxter is one of them. We would say he's not a Christian. But then we read his other works and we say, how could one without the Spirit say these things? How is it even possible? And, and we just have to get to a point where we say, you know what? I didn't know the man. He will answer to God, not to me. I don't know. I can't make a determination. There are many like that today where we, we, we can pick out little points of their theology. We can say, well, this, this here, this is just a, a red flag sticking out above all of the trees. But I don't know. I don't know the man. I can't make that determination. Surely, we see here the necessity of evaluating our own regard for Christ's servants and God's stewards. If we go back to the beginning of what we read, Paul says, this is how one should regard us. So then we ought to ask, is this how I regard them? We say that we love the master of the house. We revere the master of the house. We long to see the master of the house. Well, does any of that show in the way that we treat those that he has appointed as his managers over his household? Does your attitude toward Christ's ministers show that you honor and revere the one they represent? That's the, the picture of a, of a servant here is a representative, a commissioned representative representing their Sender, their master, a delegate. So think about the ministers of the Old and New Testament that we have written in Scripture. What does your attitude toward the Word of God say about your esteem for God's stewards who were used to write it? If someone simply evaluated how you handle God's Word, would they be able to say, you clearly have an esteem for those who penned these words. Not because of who they were, remember. That's not the question, who. The question is what. What were they? Ministers and servants. Stewards of the mysteries. We revere them for that. Would it show? Or the pastors of your own church. The pastors of your own church. This is where it gets really awkward because the pastor is the one who has to tell the congregation how to think and view pastors. One of the benefits of being the servant of another is that we can make statements about our own position according to the word of our shared master and we shouldn't have to feel embarrassed about it. Shouldn't have to. I, I cannot say, with full transparency, I cannot say that I'm, not, I'm, I'm to the point where I'm not yet embarrassed to have to say these things. It's, it's very difficult. But examine how you Reckon how you esteem, how you regard the pastors of your own church. Here's the reality. Very often the elders of a church have the hard task of trying to be familiar and friendly and hospitable with their people 
but also trying to maintain some level of honor and dignity amongst those same people that the guys on the conference stage and the guys on YouTube don't have to worry about. Those types, and this is, this is fairly new to our generation, but those, those men are, are always in our estimation set apart. They're always out there. They're always above and beyond, separate from the people. And it's easy to revere them, usually because we don't know them at all. So we just assume, we hear a message or we see a message, we just assume many things, but there are many things we don't know. And the mystery of unknowing makes it easy to hold them in high regard. I've, I've, I've been around some men in circumstances that if you didn't know them, you would, you would highly regard them. And I've been around them and I've thought, <laughs> I don't ever want to be around that guy again. That guy's a jerk. But we don't know that. And I'm not saying I won't even mention names because it's not relevant to their ministry. But very often that mystery makes it easy to hold them in high regard. But familiarity breeds contempt. Mystery, we could say, breeds exaltation or esteem, high esteem. But familiarity breeds contempt. It's exactly what Christ referenced when He said that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and amongst his own people. Why? Because they were saying, wait a second, we know you. We know your parents. We know your family. You're from here. You're one of us. Who are you to talk to us this way? He said, this is just how it is. I've often said, and I think he would agree, I may, may even have gotten it from his mouth, but the reason people like Paul Washer is because he's not their pastor. The reason we like Vody Bauckham is because he's not our pastor. The reason we love to read the Puritans is because they're not our pastors. Most of us would not have them as our pastors. There's that distance that makes it easy to regard highly, but the closer you come, the more difficult it is. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Not because of who they are, but because of their work. And there again, he's not talking about conference preachers. He's not talking about YouTube men. He's not talking about those that we just learned about in books. He's talking about the regular men that you rub shoulders with. Those who are among you. Everybody loves that. And over you, awkward. That, that's the difficulty. That's why he has to say it. And they go even further. They admonish you. It's very difficult to respect and esteem those who are among you and yet over you, and then they have the audacity to admonish you. But that's a part of the task. That's a part of the office. You say you love the master of the house, and you revere the master of the house. You long to see the master of the house. So how do you treat his managers? What is the attitude of your heart? And, and just so it's clear, I, I say this as one who submits my own self to my fellow elder, and should the Lord provide other elders in this church, they are my elders. I'm under them. I look to them for leadership. None of us gets out of this in any way. So let's all remember, as we examine our hearts, that a day is coming when every secret thing is going to be made known. Every attitude of a heart is going to be made known. So may we all, by God's grace, labor for the commendation, that is the praise that will come on that day when our Lord will be able to look at us regardless of office or position and He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did what was commanded. Let's go to Him in prayer.